Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The movie Second Samuel is set in 1949 in the small town of Second Samuel, Georgia, where the passing of the sweetest woman who ever drawed a breath reveals a secret so big it points to many of the major differences that divide us today. Later this hour, we'll hear from creatives, including favorite Atlanta-based actor Bethany Ann Lind. The film has many comic moments, while addressing contemporary issues of women's rights, race, gender, and equality. Those very issues are at the heart of a new art exhibit. Zora Neale Hurston wrote, The Will to Adorn is the second most notable characteristic in Negro expression. Perhaps the Negro's ideas of Ornament does not attempt to meet conventional standards, but it satisfies the soul of its creator. Adornment is at the soul of an exhibition now on view at Mint Gallery featuring works by Danielle Detweiler. She joins us now via Zoom with the scholar, dramaturg, and playwright Jordan Ely, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> well, always a joy to have you back, Danielle and Jordan. I look forward to hearing from you now as well. First, Danielle, in your artist statement, you write about the washerwomen's strike of 1881. What is the importance of that event, as well as its significance for this exhibition? Well, the significance of the event is it locates civil rights and um, resistance in a Southern context way before 1965. We always locate ourselves in the civil rights movement and the value of Dr. King and the value of Dr. Abernathy and that community. And they are, they really are important. But And, and that's a, a paternally led understanding of what civil rights has been in the South. However, 
The Washerwomen's Strike of 1881 in Atlanta was women-led. It, it helped us understand that we have been resisting uh, white supremacy. We have been resisting injustices and racism for an extremely long time. Uh, and even before the 1881 strike, because in Jordan's essay, we, we and, and in, in the articles that I've read for the research of this project, there were strikes that were in Mississippi. There were strikes that were in Alabama. Washerwomen have been doing this for a long time, seeking equity and seeking greater value uh, monetarily for the works that they provide. So, and those took place in the 1860s and then in the 1870s. And so there was a particular kind of success that took place in 1881 because it was so strategic, like the political movements that the women were making and the alignments that they were having enabled them to make a great impact because the Cotton Exposition was coming and because they stood extremely firm in their uh, desire to do so. And because so many women, upwards of 3,000, proliferated to become this stronghold that said, we will not work until we are valued according to our standards. And we see what you do to the people in our community, specifically the men. We see how you have um, you know, wrangled you know, life for us in a particular way, but not anymore. And so it's just really important for us to locate all of these stories and to, to state them over and over again, because we know the civil rights movement of the 60s so much, but we don't know these other stories and the legacy that they've you know, extended and handed to us. I applaud your purpose here because indeed the civil rights achievements of the mid to late 1950s leading up to the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act are monumental, indisputably. Yet there was so much more that took place before that that is not in history books that we are not aware of. And I think it's so important that you are making us aware of an event that bore tremendous significance and bravery for its time. Exactly. Bravery, right? At a time where in our minds, when you think of history, you think of it in a certain kind of way. But, you know, for them to have that kind of that gall and, and, and that self, that seriousness of, of value, that's, that's an indispensable quality of life to, to, and, and, and culture to know. And it, it would have been a great disservice to not look at it again, because I was introduced to it in Angela Davis Johnson's work that took place in 2016 at Mint Gallery. And I think I, I, I knew about it a little bit before then, but more information began to come to me as I saw it more and more. And I began to dig on my own to, to, to learn the details of the event. So I just feel like legacy is such an important term in relation to this work and re in relation to just the entire like effort of the practice. We have to, you know, keep repeating and repeating and repeating these stories because there is not a lot of information in the historical records for the actions of these women. Indeed. And this is a very ambitious project. You have many examples of film, installation, and objects. 
And I guess it isn't surprising that as an actor, you also brought in a scholar, dramaturg, and playwright in Jordan Ely. Would you talk about the scope of the exhibition? Uh, Jordan, I think it would be great to hear from you. Yeah, um, I definitely agree that this is such a, a large scale project, but I also think that there's something very, very interesting about the way Danny has tracked this idea of labors and lives and how Black women have harnessed their political power and the different ways in which it is enacted in these different mediums that she's incorporated. And so in many ways, yes, the scope feels pretty large, but also it feels very real and, and very grounded in these really interesting ways. Like there's the abstraction, right? But then there's also busted open where it's the women talking about their lives, like the, the quotidian experience of what it means to be a laboring Black woman. And and then there's chores, that film where where we just get these wonderfully amazing images around the domestic sphere, right? That, and, and I, I'm always just so fascinated by the ways that Danny is so invested in the detail and then really digging into that one specific thing and like is able to mine it and have all of these very different yet cohesive um, expressions of that singular idea. There's a scholar, Alexandra Vasquez, who writes about this idea of listening in detail. And I would argue that that's exactly what Danny does in her work is like she listens and she and she reads in detail and she pays attention to those things that seem minuscule or easy to miss but like she doesn't miss them and I feel like black women often get you know pushed into that space where they are overlooked or missed and so then we have someone like Danny who's like no let's let's look at that detail let's look at that overlooked you know community and let me mind this entire project around thinking about what it would be like if these women had an archive and had a space where they could be featured and cared for and nurtured and nourished. Um, and so that's what I really admire about the work and that the scope does feel large, but also it feels like it is, it's harnessing this very particular idea. Let's talk about some of those particularities. Danielle, which parts of the exhibition would you consider highlights for the viewer? Okay, so I'll go with an obvious one. At least this is what folks have told me thus far in the, the run of the exhibition. Uh, Lenticularities is a piece that I've been working on for, you know, definitely three years. It includes upwards of 300 portraits of myself uh, that I've logged in, you know, because because the work is, it's a historical analysis. It's a surreality uh, uh, imagination uh, building, and it's a personal mining of evolution of of restive behaviors, right? And 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 I really love the term restive because it it means stopping and moving forward. 
So there's this, you know, there's this chasm, this weird chasm of being able to to hold fast in refusal and being able to skyrocket forward because of your action. And that's kind of what the lenticularities piece does. It's this culmination of all of these different and, and lenticularities is uh, perspectives. It's it's redefining who you see yourself as. And it's an obvious one to look at and say, oh, this is definitely some, you know, aligning with the term adorn, right? But adornment is not always the aesthetics. And that's what Zorno Hurston has informed us of. It's, 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 it's something about the interiority of who we are. And that piece, it feels massive. It's the center of the of the work but it wants you to get down into the minute details that um that jordan's talking about it wants you to to pause to be still and to move forward at the same time um and then uh another piece that's that's pretty sensual it's the branches work uh that's towards the end of the you know the experience of the exhibition which puts you in the, an olfactory since which I don't know if you've seen it yet Lois but like you the shea butter is something that is just like it, it is it is invading your nose it is invading your mind it and when you think about washing women and cleaning and when you think about uh in, an, uh, in a mining of your interior self and uh an awareness of those selves once you come to once you come to the end you're you're saying to yourself oh my goodness who there is a clarity here and that's what, and the branches are, uh, the title is How to Moisturize Your Head. So there is a, a moistening, a doingness, a, a new feeling that you get to have towards the end of the exhibition. That, that's what I experience, and I hope that other folks get to experience that too. Artist Danielle Detweiler and scholar dramaturg Jordan Ely will return with more about the exhibition at the Mint after a quick break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. We're back with artist Danielle Deadweiler and scholar, dramaturg Jordan Ely. We've been discussing Danielle's latest multimedia exhibition at the Mint Gallery titled Will to Adorn. What can you tell us about the barrel topped with a horse saddle. Ah! <laughs> oh, Chinamasa. Don't think I want, I won't slaughter me or um, high enough on my horse. Now, Grandma, I, 
It's actually one of my favorite pieces. After enduring all of the 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 observation and and being you know just engulfed and exhausted by the work that you witness in the bus at Open Dock in the chorus, it or slash chores or getting to desire to distance themselves from physically physically from erstwhile masters and then the weight of of, of all of the lenticularities, you come to a knowledge that. What is this doing to to me, right? If 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 we're taking it on in a, a first person experience, what is this doing to me? What does it mean to have watched all of this stuff happen, you know, across generations? What does it mean to 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 stand and say, as a conglomerate of women of three thousand women, to say, we will, I will not take this kind of work anymore. The work that I do will be different, and so that's the culmination of saying. I have to chop it off at the head, right? And I'm thinking about workhorses. I'm thinking about um, the way we value and devalue a horse or the work, the, the way we use the term workhorse, the way we think about somebody who values themselves getting on top of a horse. So that's just saying, I'm cutting it off here. I'm cut, and that's what the Chinamasa does. The Chinamasa in Hindu culture is this goddess who, you know, chopped her head off. And and the blood of, of her is is given out to a couplet of, of of beings that I gather this couplet makes a new something and this body that has drained itself is a new something as a result of that and so that's me that's viewer that's historically the women saying enough is enough yes and I'm thinking now of the sanitation workers strike mm-hmm. in Memphis where mm-hmm. Dr. King marched with them and the signs they held saying, I am a man. These were women, 1881. So this is what, 70, 80 years before that? What was the outcome of the strike by the women? They got what they wanted, okay? That's what, that was the outcome. They got what they wanted. And the way that they said it, that's, and that's the beauty of it. It was, you know, and those are the things that are on these posters that we have at the gallery for sale. It's don't forget this. It was brash. It was ballsy. It was, you're going to give me what I want. We mean business, you know, or no, or no work from us. You know, we will have full control. It was like, you know, they set the intention and it became so, you know, they got what they wanted and they said, we're not afraid of the repercussions. And that's what happened at a time when this is the funny part, like there were, you, you know, industrial <laughs> laundromats coming into view, right? They were happening. And there was the threat of that in this, uh, in this region too, but it didn't happen. That's not what happened. They knew who their oppressors were and what they wanted and what they needed. And they knew the climate of the times, and they used all of that to their advantage and they got their increase. Yeah. It's a real testament to, the organizing ability and power of these women. Yeah, and can I can I jump in really quickly here? Please do, Jordan. I just I love the story of the the 1881 washerwomen women strike. And I also I love what Danny said earlier about like the south like 
reframing how we even think about, you know, the political power of the South and when that came to be. And I think there's something so beautiful about the way Atlanta is like this really important social space for Black women in the 19th century in particular, right? So it's like this, we talk about this idea of like new South, new South and all that, but that started back in reconstruction that started back, you know, in the, in the late 19th century, when you have this um, washerwomen strike happening. Um, And so it, it, it frames Atlanta as this very important place to where a lot of black political power is starting to rise, um, you know, after the official quote unquote abolition of of chattel slavery in the in the United States and also what i find always so just compelling about the washerwomen strike in atlanta in particular is that these were all women who were friends they knew each other they literally sat down and they talked to each other about what was happening and then that's where this political organizing really grew out of right so i'm not saying that they weren't you know professional organizers or anything like that or trying to devalue what they were doing but if anything it's like this is actually what happens when communities are are able to value and recognize their own power. This is what comes out of that, right? These were not women who were a part of, you know, these really big organizations, right? Like this was a group of women who were friends and who knew each other and who came together from that sort of quote unquote informal community and were able to make this big change happen in a time where Black women are not seen to have any sort of power. And then you know, now we're here centuries later where Black women are still harnessing that political power. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. You know? <laughs> Thank you, Stacey Abrams. Exactly. <laughs> well, it, it, you know, as much of a testament and a beautiful testament to the earnestness and the organizing ability of these women. It's also a tragic reminder of Jim Crow looming and how all of that was squelched by the turn of the 20th century. Uh, yeah, yeah, and no, right? Like, because in 1906 is the Atlanta race ride, right? Which is, you know, at, at that time, like, which is a part of that American schema where so many massacres were happening because black men were coming back from from the world wars and and started to feel, you know, a sense of greater freedom and liberty and wanted to express that in their home. And white supremacists were trying to stomp it out. Right. It shows what was happening during Reconstruction, the value of that and, and how it, it white supremacy just pushed even harder and how. It's just value to what's happening now. You can see something, you can see these events uh, uh, and the pushback and the oppression trying to rise and black folks and other folks trying to say, no, we will stand for what we desire, for what we must have. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a cycle. It's, a, it's this enduring cycle of trying to, to, to choke out the efforts of liberty. And, and that's the value of bringing this back. I'm not the first person to do something on the Washington strike. By far, Angela Davis Johnson did her work centered around it in 2016. I know of other folks who have done plays around it. And it's it's just that much more important for us to continue to echo these stories because they need to be reverberating in our communities. They need to be reverberating in all of our communities so, we, so that we know and understand how and why these things happen and how and why we need to stop them out. 
Danielle, I knew you first as an actor and a wonderful actor at that. You are multi-talented. Is there a hierarchy to the the forms of self-expression you embrace? No, no, Lois, there is no hierarchy at this point. There is a balance that has to take place. Um, there is a certain commercial uh, expression that happens and those people get to get a lot of me and it, and it happens a lot. Or, or, you know, with regard to TV and film, it, 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 it's cycled in the mind often. But then there's this other side of, of experimental expression, which is rooted in a certain um, uh, more abstract intention that uh, has to happen too. I, 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 it's like both sides. I have to have both sides. Um, and I, and I, I don't place one over the other. You know, and I love collaborative work. There's a, a particular way of collaborating with folks in TV and film. And there's another collaboration that happens in in these personalized um, uh, expressions. And, and that's the value of folks like Jordan. That's the value of folks like I work with, like Angela Davis-Johnson, you know, my people, Adaye Moon was on the show. So, you know, these are people that I'm having conversation with and who, and, and you know, my sister for that matter, Gabrielle Fulton Ponder. These are folks who are, you know, keeping me pushing and moving towards the edge of dialogues um, that are happening and just, you know, wanting to have a full breadth of what culture is and how to express it. and. I can't, I can't just be on one side. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very modest way of saying you're multi-talented. <laughs> this may be a sidebar, but what did Zora Neale Hurston identify as the most important form of the Negro self-expression, as she put it, if the will to adorn was second. Jordan. <laughs> well, like this was, so it's more, it's, I think it's less so about, for her, it was less so about like, this is the first most important, and this is the second most important. It was more so she was doing kind of ethnographic research about like the ways that Black life is enacted and most people are like oh this is sort of the start of where people are studying black performance and so she talks about you know the will to adorn but i think probably the one that most people would say is the one that she would probably privilege over them if she were to make any sort of hierarchy would be her idea of angularity and it's this idea that black folks are never sort of in this sort of still straight line, right? Like it's always this kind of angular motion, this kind of off-center, right? Way that black performance is being enacted. And so there, there's a lot of people who use that and I've, I've heard like sonic angularities and like dancing, you know, angularly. I mean, even when you think of black social dance, right? So you think of something like the black bottom where you're your body's always sort of kind of off center or, you know, other sort of black social dances that have that that way. Even if you look at contemporary black dance, there's a very angular or um, off center way that black folks are moving their bodies because of this way that we've had to move on the margins, I would say, is is what Zorno Hurston is is observing in um, in characteristics of Negro expression is like black folks have had to make their way through these through this marginal space that they've been rendered to and it has 
resulted in this kind of angular motion that they have or angular sort of sounds that they have um, in their in their work. Oh, Jordan, you took what at first sounded like such an esoteric explanation <laughs> and made it so beautifully simple to understand. <laughs> I have so enjoyed this conversation, and Danielle, I applaud your vision of the unity of the arts. Danielle Deadweiler, Jordan Ely, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Lois. Thank Thank you. This was really great. Danielle Deadweiler's exhibition, Will to Adorn, is on view at the Mint Gallery through February 20th. More information will appear on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. There are a number of films set in the South that are appealing for their colorful characters who both embody as well as defy stereotypes. Forrest Gump and Cookie's Fortune are just two that come to mind. The newest entry is Second Samuel. When Patterson directed the movie, he joins us now with two of the featured actors, E. Roger Mitchell and Bethany Ann Lind. Welcome to City Lights. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Ms. Lois. Well, the film is such a delight to watch. Let's start with a brief synopsis of Second Samuel. Wayne, would you like to do the honors? Sure. Second Samuel is a small town in southern Georgia and takes place in 1949 and is mainly the conversation of a young autistic boy in the town telling stories to Harry Truman through a pen pal relationship. And uh, these stories remind Harry of the, the small town nature that he brought was brought up in Missouri and uh, become a delight until the piano teacher dies and some secrets come out and it tosses that little town into some consternation, that's for sure. Oh yes. Now, this is your first film and you had a huge career change. What sparked that big move? It was uh, it was permission from my wife. First of all, <laughs> that would be the number one thing. But it was the, finally the the realization that at fifty two years old, nobody was knocking down my door to direct a film, and that if I was going to do it, I was just going to have to make it happen. And so I was able to form the right partnerships and get the right people helping people like uh, Joan Karpolis and, and Sherry Lipscomb, and as well as Mark Brown, who is a, a regular first AD there in Atlanta. And he brought on some people. And then these two people that are on with us just were magnanimous. I can't believe how, how we were able to attract these two talented individuals. Well, I have to cheer them on because your roles were just wonderful. Although, Bethany, I think it's the first time I've seen you play someone less than kind. (laughs) So much less than kind. Oh, yes, she ever. But it definitely went against type. 
Bethany, I should have asked you to explain the title because you do such a lovely job of it as <laughs> Jimmy Deanne. Yes, let me see if I can remember that monologue from two years ago. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> no, yeah, as, as I recall, the town was called Samuel and it burned down. Was it during the Civil War? Yeah. Yes, Sherman. Sherman comes through, right? That guy. Yes. Yes, and burns the town down and they build it back up again and now it's called Second Samuel. <laughs> now, Wayne, why did you want to adapt the play Second Samuel to film? Well, I had directed the play for our community theater several years ago and established a relationship with Miss Pamela Parker, who is the playwright and is a resident of Peachtree City there in Georgia. This story goes with everything I believe that the Southern culture should be. You know, we, we tend to grow up in this area and forget that we're raised to love our neighbors and we are raised to be able to treat people a certain way. And we get into these small cliques and forget that everybody we encounter is the neighbor. And, and it just becomes so important to tell that message in a way that reminds us. I think, I think one of the, the film critics said it gently opens the door wide. And so that's what we were trying to accomplish. You mentioned that the film is narrated by a developmentally challenged, you said autistic young man. Yes. B flat. Well, in 1949, autism would have gone undiagnosed. Right. So mentally challenged is the way they would have phrased it. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Sweet, wise young man, Bernard Flat, also known as B flat to the town. Why do you think it was important to the playwright that B flat should be the narrator? You know, I don't know what was originally in Pamela Parker's mind, but that innocence, that wisdom, it just comes through. It, it comes through in a soft, kind-hearted way without, without pointing a finger or, or degrading someone else. And I, I'm not sure that any other character would have had that ability. Miss Harriet's born Miss Gertrude passed away. You remember her, right? Miss Harriet, she's... I told you about that tall lady who lives right here on Railroad Street. You know, she, she give she give piano lessons. Yeah, you remember her? Who are you talking to? Nobody. I can hear you yakking all the way in the kitchen. I was just playing. Well, you ought to start playing a little softer, buddy. I can't hear myself think. That's U.S. He's my best friend. And He's usually real nice, but he's just got a lot on his mind right now, so he don't mean nothing. B-flat has the ability to cut right to the chase at the heart of the matter uh, without, without insulting anybody else. And so it, it, is a, it is that gentleness, it is that innocence that, that creates that character. And what we had to do in the film is to find a way to accomplish that narration and that's where the character of Harry Truman came in, so that so that we could duplicate the process in the play. Um, B flat narrates and talks straight to the audience, 
you can't really break that fourth wall as well in film as you can on the stage. So in order to accomplish that, we added the, the character of Sherry Truman and created him narrating his own letters. Well, I think that was a wonderful addition, and I, I like the way the narration leads into dissolves to the White House. Yes, ma'am. And a favorite line, if you will permit me to include this, with a spoiler alert, when Harry Truman gets on the phone to ask what kinky means, and yes, he's told, ask J. Edgar, I thought that <laughs> was priceless. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny how, how in, in the audiences, you, you just about have to be 30 years old or, or older to get that joke. But yes, absolutely. That's a great line. The film addresses several divisive issues, foremost among them. The plague of racism, especially in the South during the era of Jim Crow when the movie is set. We see it in the behavior of townsfolk toward black people in the film. E. Roger Mitchell, would you talk about some of the ways in which that is demonstrated, some examples from the screenplay? I consider, well, in what I've known and learned in history that as far as when we address uh, race and color in these United States of America, a lot of times in the onset, we know we, we call the dilemma, you know, the racism aspect of it. And it comes to the forefront pretty much all the time, to say the least. However, in this particular film and in many, many other stories through history, there's something called a village and color didn't exist as much as it did in other places. And say, for instance, where we are in our town, people treat each other like human beings at least people are trying a little bit harder to do so versus some other places when in, in history where it was a lot more overt. I think when I say village, I mean, a friend is a friend. It doesn't matter who they are or where they're from or what they look like. And that's what drew me to this, uh, this project, the humanistic aspect. And that transcends and crosses all lines of anything that's visual because we're talking about human beings and spirit. And so that's what I feel happens in Second Samuel when it comes to, you know, to my character. It's like, hey, we've been here. We've grown up together. We know each other. Our parents know each other. And that's what the village means to me. And that transcends anything that's visual. Yeah, but. much of the interaction among the townspeople, Black and white, is not only civil, it's friendly. You don't think that was extraordinary for 1949? Actually, Lois, I mean, to say absolutely yes, extraordinary, but at the same time, what Second Samuel is doing, uh, amongst other projects we've seen over history, it illuminates the fact that it actually was even more common and more places than people might know that folks treat each other that way, in a you know kind way, humanistic way. So yes, Miss Lois, there is also a uh, e a scene with E. Roger that 
is so nuanced that you almost miss it. There, there's a, a sweet scene, and it's slightly comical, where one of the, the larger racists, played by Clay Chapel, kindly suggests that maybe E. Rogers' character shouldn't attend the, the funeral because he's colored. And be flat in that sweet innocence, just say, that won't bother nobody. He's always been that color. <laughs> and this bar full of Caucasian men laugh at that line. And if you look at E. Rogers' face in that, he grins and, and nods and kind of looks, but he's got this sideways glance about that's not really funny. I mean, it's true, but it's not really funny. Mm. Well, E. Roger, your character, U.S. Simpson, whom I'm presuming was named for Ulysses S. Grant, is noble. Um, would you talk about embodying that kindness and ability to rise above the nastiness, some of the nastiness that surrounds him? Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, as far as like the craft is concerned, quote-unquote acting is concerned, um, I like to give a, a shout out to my my late father, Edgar Mitchell, who's been gone for a long time now, God bless him. But when I think about Ulysses, I thought about my father and how his spirit, just a really, really kind man, very modest, very practical, hardworking folks, him and my mom both, and I miss them obviously every day. But there was something that was just very calm and, and kind about him. And I kind of modeled Ulysses after my dad, very soft-spoken, didn't say a whole lot, not a whole lot of education per se, but a whole lot of common sense. And so I kind of took the lead from my dad, you know, my mom and, and the upbringing that they gave me. I mean, also, Lois, it starts on the page for me as far as, quote unquote, the acting, the craft is concerned. I think the literature, the words on the page, that is the breath, in my opinion, of the character. So what is on the page, thanks, Wayne, and thanks to, you know, obviously the play that's been, been around forever, it, it, you know, that informs me. And then the time, you know, the period, and we know the set of circumstances. So I just kind of dug into my own family. You know, I looked at my dad. He would have carried himself in that way. And he, in fact, your character, U.S. Simpson, is a father figure to be flat, whose own father had passed away. Yeah. Bethany, you portray Jimmy Deanne, a former beauty queen. <laughs> Not surprising you could play the role of a beauty queen. <laughs> but this one knows all the town's gossip. <laughs> Was there anyone you were channeling when you prepared for this role? <laughs> I feel like I grew up with with a few Jimmy Deans, although that I know of, none of them were quite that mean. Um, <laughs> but certainly, you know, if you grow up in any sort of town, city situation, you know, you know people who just know everybody's business and know everything that's going on and maybe like maybe add a little to it too so definitely a conglomeration of people I knew I love it when you utter the line later in the film about sending someone back up north like to Atlanta I thought okay Atlanta's up there with New York and I, and I I think that probably 
was and maybe still is a perception of Atlanta as the urban center that is not necessarily the same as the rest of Georgia or the South. For sure. I I grew up in a smallish town in North Carolina and I was afraid of Atlanta. Like that's the big city. Well, you have conquered it. (laughs) I love it now. (laughs) Good. Why do you think Jimmy Deanne is shattered to find out the big secret in the movie? Shattered is a really good word for it. I think it's the thing of, of when you see your world a certain way. And when she finds out that her world is not the way that she thought it was, yeah, it's the image of shattering is, is perfect because your world suddenly explodes a little bit. It's not what you thought it was. And you also have no control over that. I'm sure we've all been in experiences like that to a degree. <laughs> Take a global pandemic, for instance, where you know that afterwards the world is not going to be the same. Your world is not going to be the same. And, you know, it takes a minute to adjust. And Jimmy Dan does not do that very uh, graciously. <laughs> she does not know how to adjust with any sort of grace for other people by any means. Again, the wisdom of the character of B. Flat, the young man who adored Miss Gertrude. If U.S. Simpson was his father figure, she was his mother figure. Mm-hmm. And he, he is devastated. He's bereft at her passing. But then added to that is anger at the way the town responds when they find out Miss Gertrude's secret. He says, yesterday you loved her. Now you can't stand to have her buried here. Why is it so difficult for the town of Second Samuel to see their own hypocrisy? Do you think it's the time period? I would say each time period most likely has its own set of hypocrisies. Certain groups of people have their set of hypocrisies that history will later decide, you know. And I think for for this town, it's not clear if you just believe that something is wrong so strongly without any real reasoning except that it's actually a little scary to you it's very hard to see in a moment that it's, it actually doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> that the thing you're afraid of is nothing to be afraid of, especially when you don't even see it as fear, you know, when you see it as just some sort of moral line that, that's been invented somewhere along the way. Um, just the way things are. It's just the right. way things are. Right. And I, I think, like you said, like <laughs> it is that time period. It, that's the way things are. But I think it's pretty apparent we all have our own hypocrisies that come to light that it takes a minute. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to more of my conversation about the film Second Samuel. I've been speaking with the actors Bethany Ann Lind and E. Roger Mitchell 
along with director Wayne Patterson. Wayne's father was a minister and worked for the Alabama Southern Baptist Convention. He acknowledged that his father's beliefs influenced his attraction to making this film. Part of what I was drawn to was when my father came to see the play when I directed it, he pointed out that this is the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, didn't pick the Samaritan at random. He picked the one person that every Pharisee out there would absolutely condemn and told them, that's your neighbor, that's who you're supposed to, to treat well. That's who you're supposed to treat like you love yourself. And my father is the one who pointed that out. Uh, my, my father, like you, Rogers, is... Well, my father was a doctorate in education from uh, Southwestern Seminary and one of the most intelligent men and the most kindest and wisest men I've ever known in my life. And without his take on Southern Baptist Protestantism, I'm not sure I would have be the same person. And, and it's not the standard Southern Baptist that you see on the news or anything like that. He had a very loving spirit, and he thought that our first command was to love our neighbors as ourselves. And ultimately, that is the message of this film. In fact, you have a hashtag, don't you? Yes, ma'am. Uh, hashtag love your neighbor. And U.S. says this a number of times throughout the film. Why is this ideology so resonant now? Right now is when we are forgetting that the most, especially when we're so isolated and away from each other because of this pandemic that Bethany was mentioning. Right now is when we're generating the most fear and need to be reminded the most of, of the connections that we have to each of these individuals. My favorite line of E. Rogers is, Mr. Moselle, you going to be a Pharisee or you going to love your neighbor? Mm -hmm. uh, Roger, what do you think about that? Well, I think, quite frankly, like as piggybacking off of a couple of things, uh, like Bethany was talking about the hypocrisies that are sometimes built in that it may not even exist. The fact that like the Samaritan, these are the things that I believe personally should be happening every day between human beings. So to me, I think what Second Samuel, the reminder, the mirror that we're holding up to life is people have to work harder technically to not be this way. It's harder to be upset than actually be okay. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's easier to say hello. It doesn't take a whole lot of work. But like people have these built in, once again, quote unquote, hypocrisies of, of sorts. That takes work to uphold. I was just going to add, what we hope that Second Samuel does is, is hold a mirror up, especially to those, to those of us in the South who, who have these ingrained prejudices and ingrained ideas and slowly wipe the fog off that mirror and let us see ourselves the way we really are. Our small prejudices, our small ingrained thought patterns that, that are just not the way it should be. I hope that's what Second Samuel accomplishes. Mm. I think you touched upon this, Wayne, but I will ask, why is now an especially good time to release this film? in relation to our current reckoning and specifically in the South? You know, we need a gentle reminder to reopen a discussion about who our neighbor is, about how we treat each other, 
and it doesn't matter what color, what gender, what religious preference or sexual preference. It, it does not matter those things. At the very end of the movie, in fact, when after you've learned the secrets and one of the things that gets said is it was about how she treated people. It was about how she took care of people. And ultimately, that's what's going to overcome any kind of prejudice. Loving each other is what's going to overcome. We're, we're not going to get the response we needed. You know, this is the age where if we don't like what somebody says, we just block them. And, and all of a sudden on social media, that just simply limits the ideas that we have access to. Why do that? Why block somebody just because they have a slightly different opinion than you do? I'd rather hear what they have to say. I'd rather them hear what I have to say. And let's, let's have a discussion. Let's have a debate if that's necessary. But it doesn't have to descend into argument. And it doesn't have to descend into to anger. Um, we can calmly figure things out. That's what America's been doing for 200 years, is, is moving in the right directions because we have dialogue, because we have a caring uh, attitude toward our neighbor. That's the secret to it. And that's what Second Samuel tries to do is repoint out that, that we, we just have to treat each other like neighbors. Wayne Patterson, director of the recent film Second Samuel, with actors Bethany Ann Lind and E. Roger Mitchell. The movie is available on Amazon Prime and other streaming platforms. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Monday at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the High Museum's new exhibition of works by David Driscoll, the first since the artist passed away last April. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Shelley Canavy is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S, R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash City Lights. Have a safe and good weekend. And thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.